This is No Commons, and I'm your host, Janice Geary. I'm talking to experts across diverse fields about how they think the infamous idea of the tragedy of the commons can help tackle big problems of how we govern shared resources. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Rebecca Kuman today. Rebecca is a lecturer in the psychology department at the University of Dundee and an evolutionary and comparative psychologist. After completing a BSc in psychology and zoology at the University of Toronto, she worked in nonprofit conservation in Tanzania before pursuing graduate degrees in comparative and evolutionary psychology and comparative and developmental psychology. After working as a behavior scientist for a London-based firm, she returned to academic research to study common pool resource dilemmas from multiple disciplinary perspectives using experimental approaches. She has published her work in top peer-reviewed journals, but has also written commentaries in the public open forum Medium. And she has written a pair of papers we're going to talk about today called An Investigation of Children's Strategies for Overcoming the Tragedy of the Commons and Chimpanzees Overcome the Tragedy of the Commons with Dominance. So welcome, Rebecca. Thanks so much for joining me today. Is there anything that you wanted to add to that uh, introduction or to emphasize? No, that was all accurate. Excellent. Great. So normally I start off by asking guests for a summary of their paper, but since we're talking about two papers today, I thought maybe you could start off by telling us about how you came to study common pool resource dilemmas in these two unique populations. Sure. Um, So I have been interested in the nexus between uh, understanding human psychology um, and understanding animals for as long as I can remember. I've been really fascinated particularly by a lot of the research um, with chimpanzees uh, that sort of gets to the heart of where we as an ancestral species potentially came from, or at least at least a species that we're related to, highly related to. To me, understanding how animals behave and how animals perceive their world unlocks a lot of interesting questions about how humans perceive our own worlds and how humans communicate uh, and how we interact uh, with the challenges that we face. Um, and so I think the comparison between different species and the human species can can be one that produces a lot of really rich uh, scientific discoveries. As someone with a background in psychology, how did you even come across the idea of the tragedy of the commons? So I have to give a shout out to my mother here. She's she's always been a very outspoken environmentalist. Um, <laughs> in fact, when I was little, I remember uh, a bit of a claim to fame. Our family was in the newspaper because we produced so little garbage. <laughs> so there was a newspaper article written about us. That all goes to my mother. She's always been very passionate about protecting the environment. And as I was uh, just starting out on my PhD, I had I was in this lab uh, in Germany where we had access to chimpanzees in Africa. We had access to this massive database of uh, children of all ages, um, and we could do a lot of really interesting comparative work. As I was setting out, that was just the clear the clear culmination of what I had been working up to until that point, uh, that I wanted to ask these big questions about how those two populations um, deal with resources, deal with limited and uh, renewing resources. That's really interesting. You're the second person I've chatted with who had a familial connection with these concepts of common pool resource governance. So that's that's really nice. I think it just goes to show how how broad the idea of the tragedy of the commons is and how it's been applied outside of academic work as well. It's really kind of it's it's one of those rare academic terms that has gone so far beyond just the literature. So that's really interesting. That's a good segue into your actual papers. Could you maybe just give us a little summary of what each of them is about? 
maybe you could describe like so did you set out to do them both together on purpose okay so they they were conceived of initially as a comparative set so we knew from the beginning we wanted to do something comparable between chimps and children so that helped also inform the design of the the mechanism so how we were going to set it all up because it had to be something that was appropriate for chimpanzees and appropriate for children which is not not always an easy a super easy task particularly with something as complex as the tragedy of the commons so we set out with this idea we wanted to be able to mimic a common pool resource in a way that it was clear to a population of chimpanzees and to six-year-old children um, that they could continue to collect this resource as freely as they wanted to as much or as little as they wanted up to them how much they took but if any of them took too much at any given time it could collapse the resource so this was this was quite challenging and, and we in the end, we came up with this final design um, where there was a, a cylinder, a clear cylinder that hung in front of the chimpanzees and the children. And from the top of the cylinder, there was like a very large transparent bucket of either what we called magic water for the children or mango juice for the chimpanzees. So they could see there was this huge source and almost endless supply of whatever their resource was. And it dripped at a steady rate into the cylinder in front of them. Once it was in the cylinder, they could see that it was in the cylinder because it was clear. Once it was in there, they could either drink it. So the chimpanzees had access to it via these drinking nipples with a hose that connected to the cylinder. Or the children had a hose that connected to a little, a little play box that they could open and close a tap to collect water whenever they wanted. So we set up this mechanism so that it was constantly renewing from the source way up at the top. So it was a renewable resource, but they could see also inside the cylinder was a bright red cork that would float up and down with the level of the water or the, or the juice in the case of the chimpanzees. And what they learned over time, we had to sort of, with the chimpanzees, we had to familiarize them over a period of uh, a few months. With the children, they just came into the lab and we told them how it worked. That's one of the advantages of working with humans. <laughs> So with the chimpanzees, we, we familiarized them on, a, uh, on an individual basis so that they, they really learned how, the, how it actually works. And they learned the contingency between their drinking behavior and uh, the amount of juice that they were able to collect. But ultimately, both the chimpanzees and the children showed that they could understand that when this cork flows down too low, about a third of the way down to the bottom of the cylinder, it would basically interact with a magnet on the outside of the um, cylinder. And when that magnet engaged with the cork that was floating inside the cylinder, it would automatically pull a plug out from underneath the bottom end of the cylinder. And all of the mango juice or of the magic water for the kids would flow out onto the ground and it would be inaccessible to them, including the, the future dripping magic water or the, the dripping mango juice from the top. So this represented resource collapse or the tragedy of the commons. Um, so they had to learn, the chimpanzees had a really hard time actually learning to drink very slowly in order to maximize the amount of juice they were getting from the top of this source. And likewise, for the children, um, I'm sure you can imagine easily, for a six-year-old um, who's collecting this water for to be able to trade in these, um, these little eggs uh, for candies, they wanted to collect that as quickly as they could. So that was quite a challenging task for both the children and the chimpanzees, but that gave us the opportunity because we had the same mechanism for both the children and the chimps to be able to directly compare their behavior, um, which is, was quite exciting for us. Yeah, I'm always interested in how these experiments are set up with children and animals to study psychology. 
Uh, so I'm just wondering if you could share maybe a little bit of the process of actually establishing those experimental procedures. They always seem so so innovative to me and so intelligent in their design. Is it just that people who are doing this have an idea of how to set them up or is it a really long process of establishing those methods? I would like to say the idea came to us overnight, but it was not, <laughs> it's absolutely not that simple. I think you're quite limited with, with chimpanzees. You're really limited to some type of mechanism that's somehow visually accessible because you can't explain to them, this is what happens. So stop drinking now. And that way you'll get more future and you'll get more juice in the future. So we had to come up with something that was that was designed in a way that they could see the visual effects of their drinking behavior. But it also had to be something that was simple enough of a design that we could carry this apparatus with us from Germany down to Uganda, where the chimpanzees were. Um, and we were on an island that had very little electricity. Um, things things there on the island were really fairly sparse and bare bones. Um, so we couldn't rely on, on generators or, or power to man this apparatus. So we, we started with the constraints that we knew we had, uh, and we sort of went forward from there knowing it can't require power and it has to be somehow visually accessible. So that's, yeah, I mean, it took us several months to develop this final <laughs> apparatus design. I always, when I read things like that, I always feel almost an envy that I could never come up with a design that elegant. So as it makes me feel a little better to know that it is a challenging thing and it's not just me who would struggle with that. Just as a point about your papers, what I, one thing that I really enjoyed about the papers is when you're writing for an audience that doesn't necessarily know about common pool resource governance. So I found that for anyone who's interested in reading these papers, for starters, they're very interesting, well-written papers, and they're such a nice summary of the broad literature in CPR governance. If anyone wants to just start to learn about that, I thought you did a really fantastic job giving an overview for an audience that isn't already really engaged in that literature. So that's one reason to read those papers. And the other reason that I really love those papers is these are such, for lack of a better word, cute populations. It's And it's, I really, I loved learning about the, the things the children said, and I really enjoyed the attention that you paid to how you protected the chimpanzees in the study and how uh, you took ethical approaches to ensuring that the chimpanzees were participating voluntarily as well. And I thought that that was a really great thing to read um, and very interesting to hear about because I obviously don't work in animal populations and I thought that was a really um, great approach. So what? how much have you worked in CPR dilemmas prior to doing these two studies? So prior to that, I hadn't actually done any research. Um, that was Those were the first two studies in my PhD. Um, so they were the two first major scientific academic studies I had put together. In the, in the bachelor's degree that I did uh, at the University of Toronto, um, I also did conservation biology. So I was a bit familiar with the conservation literature, but that was the first time that I had really dove into uh, CPR stuff directly. I thought you did a really great job pointing out how... Uh, you know, we, th we think about CPR literature as being so broad, but you're right. We really only focus on adult human populations. And there's lots of other types of populations that have to manage their resources. Can you talk a little bit about what is the benefit of studying CPR dilemmas in these non-human adult populations? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two, these, the two populations in these two papers are um, young children and chimpanzees both of which are fascinating to study from a psychological perspective because for, for different reasons. So with children, with children, you get a picture um, of how 
social cognition develops across the lifespan. So you can test children uh, on a number of different sort of psychological concepts at different stages in their development and really sort of map out this is approximately when this skill develops uh, in the human lifespan. And generally speaking, if a skill develops uh, in a preverbal infant, you can say that that skill is, has potentially been uh, evolved um, within the human lineage earlier than a skill that, say, doesn't, it doesn't develop until age six or seven once they start going to school and socializing in more complex ways. Um, so you can start to draw some, some interesting evolutionary inferences already from, from developmental studies with children, but then to complement those studies with chimpanzees um, gives you then a phylog like more of a phy phylogenetic comparison. So chimpanzees are some of our closest living relatives, chimpanzees and bonobos. We're highly related to them genetically. Almost 99% of our uh, DNA uh, is, is similar to that of chimpanzees or identical. The way that they behave in certain psychological tests um, also allows us to make evolutionary inf inferences um, about the development of the human brain um, relative to some of our ancestors or some of the uh, animals that we're most closely related to. So if, for example, a chimpanzee is capable of doing something, it passes a certain psychological test in an experiment, then you can much more easily start to infer that that particular psychological trait or that psychological ability um, likely evolved more than 8 million years ago, like before we split with our ancestor uh, with the chimpanzees. Those are two of the reasons why uh, chimpanzees and children are, are quite an interesting, quite interesting populations to study. In addition to that, children provide a, a quite unique opportunity to look at some of these complex social cognitive issues, largely because they aren't as enculturated as, as human adults are. So they, they don't necessarily know that much about the environment. They're not enculturated with the, the political and the cultural meaning behind a lot of these uh, environmental concepts. They wouldn't yet be socialized to the extent that an adult is with um, potentially ideological concepts uh, surrounding CPR dilemmas. So looking at them is, is um, a bit like looking at a fresh canvas, cognitively speaking. So thinking about this, these you know evolutionary population um, dynamics and that this fresh canvas, what did you learn about how these populations manage CPRs? Um, much to our delight, we learned that both chimpanzees and children at the age of six are capable of uh, sustaining a resource collectively, um, thereby avoiding the tragedy of the commons. Um, so that was the first question that we set out to answer. Are, are they even capable of doing that? No one had really ever looked at that before. So we were pretty happy when we found out that, yes, they could. But it turns out both populations um, are perhaps not surprisingly not extremely good at it. Um, much like human adults, uh, we fail pretty pretty easily and pretty frequently around the world um, to actually cooperatively manage resources in such a way that we can sustain them over time. As I'm sure you know, <laughs> examples like climate change, uh, deforestation, overfishing, I mean, they're, they're everywhere all over the world. But in, in the two studies or in the three studies in those two papers, we did find that chimpanzees and children were somehow comparable in the frequency with which they could cooperate over the resources. We did find though that when they succeeded in cooperating, they did so in demonstrably different ways. So there was a stark difference between how they actually cooperated over the resource. And I'm using the word cooperate here um, in more of a scientific way. 
it, it perhaps doesn't seem like the chimpanzees were really cooperating because of the way they did it. But it, it, in terms of in terms of the definition of cooperation, this is absolutely well within the boundaries. So what the chimpanzees did is when they had quite a large difference in the dominance between the two individuals, all studies were in pairs. So they weren't actually in groups. They were just two pairs next to each other um, accessing the resource at the same time. Um, and what we found is that the chimpanzees um, were the when they were successful at uh, sustaining the resource together, when they got the maximum amount of this mango juice dripping from the top from the top without actually collapsing the juice, without uh, reaching the tragedy of the commons, what defined those pairs was a large difference in dominance between the dominant individual and the subordinate individual. So it was really clear to those pairs who was the dominant and who was the subordinate. And there was a difference that was large enough in dominance between them that sub the subordinate um, didn't necessarily have as much control over the situation as they probably would have liked to. Um, and what we found is that those subordinates in those cases with those pairs, the subordinates were basically just taking barely, as, barely enough mango juice to not collapse it but then the dominant individual was taking the vast majority of the mango juice. So they were dominating the situation and they, they had basically control over the collapse mechanism. So the, the subordinate individual was not uh, gonna step in and take juice out of spite or something like that. We found the opposite with the children though. So the kids who are the most successful at sustaining the resource collectively were the ones who most equally distributed the resource between them. So there was the most amount of equity in these pairs that were actually quite good at getting the full amount of the, the water without collapsing it. So what, what we took away from this is that the concept of fairness, um, and we see this in a lot of other studies that compare resource distribution and, and sharing, for example, between chimpanzees and children. The concept of fairness seems to be quite in integral to children's understanding of uh, how to distribute resources, but it also seems to be quite important for human cooperation. And cooperation in chimpanzees just simply takes a, a, quite a different form. So for the chimpanzees, the cooperation is much more utilitarian. It's not necessarily based on a, an internal motivation to help or, or to provide something to another the way it often is with humans. Um, it's much more about getting the maximum amount of a resource. Um, and in this case, that required cooperation between the two individuals. Uh, but with the children, we saw uh, we saw distributive justice taking place. So we saw turn taking. We saw quite elaborate rules making um, the way we would expect in, in successful adult groups. Um, we saw um, some children taking taking control of the situation and saying, OK, now you you have this much. OK, now I'm going to have that much, too. Um, so we saw a lot of really sort of complex coordination going on between the two children that resulted in quite a fair and equal split when they were successful, which was just the exact opposite with the chimpanzees. I think people can really relate to the children and their desire for candy. But how important is mango juice to a chimpanzee? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that there's anything more important than mango juice to a chimpanzee. <laughs> I think if I recall correctly from your paper, and please let me know if I'm wrong, you measured the amount they could drink in a period of time. And it was something like almost two liters in four minutes, if I'm yeah. remembering right. Yeah. <laughs> it's unreal how much they can drink uh, and how much they want to drink. I mean, the, the ones that, that drank those two liters would happily have probably drunk twice as much of that in no equally quick time. So it's a big deal for them to hold back then. Yes, it's a very big deal. Yeah. And in order to successfully 
sustain the mango juice. I think I think they had to drink at about a third of the rate as they would naturally have wanted to drink. So they really had to exhibit quite a quite a good amount of uh, inhibitory control, which is for chimpanzees not so difficult. I mean, they they come from environments where they have very variable food distribution, so they tend to be reasonably good at inhibitory control. But when there's another individual involved who can take away that mango juice at any time. Uh, it becomes a different scenario. So the fact that they were able to inhibit that competitive desire to drink the juice was was quite stark. How do you think that a, a children's response to managing a common pool resource and a chimpanzee's response might compare to human adults? I mean, it's a complex question. <laughs> and I think, quite honestly, there's a little bit of chimpanzee in all of us. Uh, and there's, there's a little bit of the child response in all of us as well. So... Um, in the work of Eleanor Ostrom, you see a lot of this um, complex rulemaking that, that defines the most successful groups uh, in a CPR dilemma. Um, so when, when communication, face-to-face -face communication, for example, is possible, um, when reputation management uh, is, is a salient element of the context, um, then people, groups who cooperate together can actually come together and, and make their own rules and manage their own resources. Um, in such a way that they're they're maximizing the resource acquisition over time as a group collectively. Um, and so there were definitely elements of what what we find in in successful human groups uh, in the children. Um, so for example, this this turn taking or just the generation of rules, um, we didn't tell them that's how they had to play it. We told them in fact that there were no rules and that they could play any way that they wanted. Um, and these children just spontaneously generated rules. They spontaneously generated these strategies that involved uh, turn-taking and that involved uh, equal distributions between them. And another element that is actually quite comparable to adults is that um, fairness and access to the resource uh, is one of the main predictors of success for, for groups uh, sort of in the world, in the natural world, um, experiencing a CPR dilemma. Um, so this was something that came up definitely with the children. I mean, the, the ones who were not equally distributing the resource also tended to reach tragedy to commons much sooner uh, in their trials. So we were, we were quite surprised actually at how sophisticated already these strategies were uh, in the six-year-old kids. With the chimpanzees, we, you have this monopolization happening of, of the resource. So the dominant individual gets to decide when, when the resource collapses and when it doesn't collapse. And this is something, I mean, these are, these are quite complex uh, concepts to compare, um, but I think in some ways it's fair to compare that to privatization. There's a, a group of humans who have more political or economic power, and therefore they have primary access to a resource um, because they can purchase that land or they can purchase uh, that set of resources, whatever, whatever the case might be. And with the chimpanzees, of course, this, this is not necessarily related to financial wealth. This has to do with physical dominance and with the, the social dominance within their group. But still, the, the resulting consequence is that the subordinate individual chose not to collapse the resource while also getting just a tiny, tiny amount relative to the, to the dominant individual, which is pretty striking. For my PhD research, I studied a heterogeneous global knowledge commons. It was actually scientific data to support bioconservation efforts. Obviously, being a global resource, it involves participants from lower and high income countries. So I got a little bit into the literature around heterogeneity and managing commons. And actually, there's some evidence when people were actually measuring 
the impact of specific variables that were kind of proxies for heterogeneity, like wealth, that is very parallel to the chimpanzees, that when you have very stark differences within the group, the, the dominant population, and I think in most of the cases, it was people that were much more wealthy, took efforts to maintain the resource without the consideration of the people without the power, but it still led to managing the resource. So I thought that that was really interesting and seeing that kind of parallel with the chimpanzees as well. Fascinating. Yeah. And I I haven't read that literature since I published that paper about two years ago. So I I feel the need to kind of go back into that and and read more about it. And maybe that's our inner chimpanzee coming out. I mean, the the theoretical position within the field of evolutionary psychology is that human brains have something akin to a chimpanzee brain. Of course, we, we don't come directly from the chimpanzees. We come from a, a shared ancestor with the chimpanzees. But the, the prevailing idea is that somewhere down the brainstem, uh, we have what is like a chimpanzee brain or like a chimpanzee ancestral brain uh, with much more complex human cognition built on top of it in this prefrontal cortex. So yeah, in many ways, in many ways, the chimpanzee in us uh, still comes out. And and it's something that needs to be, I think, taken into account when we're talking about complex interactions between human societies and the environment. And you touched on how your experimental evidence relates to a lot of the experimental and observational studies of Ostrom. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how your paper relates to Hardin's 1968 description of the tragedy of the commons. Yes, I touched on that just a little bit. Um, What what Hardin was arguing is that without any kind of top-down government regulation, either in terms of population control Uh, or in terms of privatization or top-down government systems of management of resources, without some type of system of those three types, we would basically, because of our nature, fall victim to the tragedy of the commons inevitably over and over again. So he talked about this logic of the commons. At that time, the field of economics was was dominated by this idea that humans are, are rational consumers. In this case, rational in my opinion, had quite a limited definition, and, and that's in terms of just gaining in terms of uh, money or, or resources. All of our social cognitive abilities and desires and motivations uh, weren't part of that uh, equation. But still, he, he was talking about this, this logic of the commons drawing us inevitably towards tragedy unless we privatize uh, or unless we control our population such that we are a small enough population that we have enough resources that we don't need to actually compete over them. In some ways, I think that the way the chimpanzees responded to the experimental paradigm, although they weren't physically able to prevent another individual from taking the resource, they still there still was enough power differential between them uh, that the dominant individual was essentially privatizing. Like I said, I think these are quite complex uh, concept. So it's in some ways not fair to say that a, a chimpanzee is privatizing a resource. But the end result is that the dominant individual still had full control over the resource, whereas the subordinate individual simply didn't. Um, and they, they may have different currencies than, than adult human beings, but um, the resulting consequences is, I think, something comparable uh, with, what, with what he was arguing for. Right. And that, I mean, is one of the main criticisms of the paper is that he had a very limited view of how humans can manage these these resources and of, of course this paper's been you know criticized and Ostrom is you know widely known for refuting his his central argument I'm wondering you know given that you learned about this concept from your mom is 
Is that when you also learned about some of these controversies or did you come across that more when you got into the literature yourself later on? Yeah, that was all stuff I started picking up um, once I once I became an academic. Yeah, my, my mother is a very passionate uh, environmentalist and uh, is very outspoken and proud about that and something that I think, you know, I, I carry with me everywhere I go. I, I didn't actually start reading about Eleanor Ostrom uh, or Hardin's work until I got into my um, undergrad. How do you think some of the controversies that surround his paper impact how it's applied in more modern work? I mean, I think that this controversy, I see it as a wider controversy, not specifically to do with Hardin himself, but with the field of economics. I see the field of economics as having gone through a bit of a rebirth, uh, especially in the past 20 years or so. Kahneman and Tversky and, and this idea that, that we're sort of predictably irrational in ways that, that weren't previously conceived of. I think it goes much wider than that. And, and I think the field of psychology recognizes a lot more sort of social cognitive aspects of, of human decision making that still fails to be captured by uh, economic models of decision making. And I think that that's an ongoing dispute between psychology and, and, and economics of how you can actually conceive of human models of decision making, um, which I think is quite unfortunate because I think the field of economics could learn a lot from psychology and likewise psychology could learn a lot from the field of economics. So I, I hope that it's something that over the next 20, 30 years, we can, we can start to bridge more successfully. But I, I think this idea of homo economicus, it's just, it's so fascinating how wrong that concept is um, and how long that was the prevailing concept and how much data there is currently that, that just wildly refutes that idea. And I think that uh, well, I mean, I have to admit that I'm a psychologist, not an economist, but I think that the field of economics is still catching up to that. One thing that I have learned as I you know, read a lot of modern papers that are citing Hardin's 68 paper, um, I've been going back to other things that Hardin wrote because most of it, even in CPR literature and looking at knowledge commons, people mostly rest reference Ostrom and all of her scholarship and Hardin's 1968 paper, but it's really rare for anyone to touch on anything else Hardin wrote. And another thing he was really against, or he really kind of whined about was interdisciplinary work. And he has one paper where he sort of talks about how he sort of whines about how mean they are to him and how people should really focus on the, you know, the true nature of things. And he, I guess, people who take these broad approaches like what you've done are, are too complex for the very limited way in which he has described and, and viewed the world. So I always just get a little bit happy when I see these like beautiful, elegant, interdisciplinary papers that are such a good example of why we need interdisciplinary work to, to bring these ideas together. It just, it just makes me feel so happy to see just another little finger wag in the direction of this is why we, we can't think in those narrow terms anymore. So I'm really glad that you, you brought how, how important it is for these different disciplines to work together. Yeah, absolutely. They're crucial for each other, I think. So as a person who studies knowledge commons, I'm obviously very interested in, in data sharing. And I was really excited to see that you have supplemental information where you shared a little bit of your data. Can you talk about what you did share from this paper? In our supplemental information um, on the chimp paper, we had a video of the chimps. Um, so there were a number of gestures that we uh, recorded and then put together. Uh, I think we also probably shared the coding scheme, but I don't know about any raw data. I don't remember. I don't. I just don't think in my field that there are that many people who who would take a chimpanzee data set and, and try to like recode it or or reanalyze it. 
it's hard too because a lot of people are I guess encouraged to share this with supplemental materials within a paper but then it's hard to find that it's hard mm-hmm. to actually access that data um, I have a, a paper that I'm just getting ready to submit and the whole point of the paper is to share the data set so I'm not submitting it with the paper though I'm submitting it into a repository with its own DOI so that I can because I like these things I want to track to see if anyone actually accesses the data. So I, I'm, you know, putting it subsequent to the paper, but referencing within it. And then my data set gets another reference of me referencing myself. So nice. <laughs> that's nice. Awesome. Thanks so much for detailing everything about those papers and the, and the results that you found. I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you want to share in general about the papers or just thoughts about the tragedy of the commons. I think this, this really sort of elegant, difference in strategy that we found between the children and the chimpanzees. I think it was really beautiful that that they both achieved success, but in, in quite different ways. And that fairness is really the element that defined the success in the children. Fairness of resource sort of access and acquisition. I mean, this is this comes through in a lot of Eleanor Ostrom's work as well, um, and other people who've studied the tragedy of the commons. Um, and I think that something that I've been thinking about a lot this past year I mean, this has been a really difficult year for North America, I mean, for the whole world. Um, but in terms of uh, the racial inequities in the United States, I, I was born and raised in the United States and uh, watching from afar what happened uh, last summer and, and all the, the protesting and the counter protesting, um, it really broke my heart. But I, I see sometimes a, a heartbreaking disconnect between these ideas of environmental conservation and, and preservation and sustainability and racial justice or or gender justice or any kind of social justice. Um, I think that if we truly as a human society, with all of our all of our ungodly inequality that we have currently built into our systems, if we really want to address uh, environmental issues, we need to first address social justice issues. Uh, so we need, we need to bring about a world with an economy uh, that more people feel is fair if, if we're going to have any chance of dealing with our, with our, with our massive uh, environmental issues. I'm sure that there's a way to say that much more eloquently than I have. But what, what my studies, along with many other studies by, by Ostrom and, and other colleagues, uh, show pretty clearly is that we won't have a chance of being sustainable if we're, if we're not going to treat each other in a fair way. And until we reach some level where all of us feel that our system is fair, I think that it's, uh, I think that we need to put the, we need to put our, our fairness first. I think that's a really fantastic point to almost end on. Uh, but I also wanted to ask you if there's anything you're working on right now that listeners might be interested in or want to check out in the future. So right now, like now, now I'm not actually doing anything. I'm just writing grants to get money to do more research in the future. But I, I would really like to bring these studies. So all of my studies so far with kids and chimpanzees have been at the dyadic level. So just two individuals involved at a time. Um, and I'd like to bring them into a more naturalistic group setting. So compare chimpanzees at the group level um, at di- across different sanctuaries where I can just give them a CPR that they can access anytime as a group. Um, like likewise with kids, uh, I'd love to be able to give children a CPR in a kindergarten or something like that and allow them to engage with it much more naturalistically. Um, so whether they're not just two individuals, but a whole group of kids. And I'd like to do a, a number of things with adults cross-culturally as well, looking at different factors 
uh, at the group level that that are impacting uh, CPR success. So I'm, that's one of the big grants that I'm writing right now is bringing bringing the the dyadic paradigm into the group uh, level. I, for one, would love to see that work funded, mostly because I want to see how you set up these experiments, because I think it's going to be, I guess you're designing them now to write about them in the grant. Is it is it much harder than the, the dyads then? Yeah, it certainly comes with its own, its own set of challenges, and I haven't arrived at the solution yet, but it, I have to admit it's one of the funnest parts of my job. <laughs> I can imagine. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining me today to talk about these papers. Uh, I'll have them all linked in the show notes for people to check out. And yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This was great. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more, you can find links to articles and other things we mentioned in the episode at nocommons.ca forward slash podcast. You can also find me and the show on Twitter at at nocommons. If you'd like to suggest a paper to feature, drop me a note on my website contact page. And of course, please consider subscribing to No Commons wherever you get your podcasts.